Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. Like I said, we've been looking at the Yoga Sutra, and um, then every once in a while we've been punctuating what we've been doing with um, a Buddhist lens. And uh, last week the Buddhist lens we used was uh, a Zen koan. And uh, a koan is like a riddle. It's a story. It's usually a dialogue that happens between a teacher and a student. And in the dialogue, something happens where it stuns that part of our mind that is trying to figure things out or attain something. So as a reminder, when you listen to the koan, when you listen to what we're going to explore tonight, not to listen with that part of you that's clever, that can do some kind of linguistic, poetic game that can come up with an answer to the riddle because um, that's not really what the koan is designed for. Um, But first, I wanted to dedicate the talk tonight to uh, a man named Jerry Durlach. Some of you I know know him. He passed away this week uh, on Thursday. And um, Jerry uh, was a friend of mine. He was a student of mine for a number of years. Uh, He never came to anything public, so I just worked with him one-on-one, once, sometimes twice a week, for a number of years. Jerry was a professor at York University and also had a post at the Canadian Film Centre. And his interest was how to use technology to uh, create social action. And... um, He did all kinds of things. Uh, One of the uh, well-known projects that he was really uh, engaged with was creating a van that had some satellite feed so that uh, they would drive it through South America with uh, a map and and a schedule that was given to people in different towns so that when this um, van came through, everyone in the town could upload and download their emails wirelessly uh, without anybody knowing and uh, he was really into you know these ways that technology can be used for free uh, amongst young people especially to affect social change and um, he found out he had um, prostate cancer and he was really scared that uh, he was going to experience a lot of pain and so uh, his 
uh, he was a mentor to Anna Serrano, some of you know. And she said, oh, just, uh, you know, maybe you can learn some meditation to deal with that. And uh, he was really, really motivated. And, um, of course, over the years, seeing anybody who comes with <coughs> illness, um, who really wants to learn something, they're motivated to practice. And there's no, like, issues about what time should in the day should I practice or... I don't feel like practicing today. It's like high-octane practice. And uh, he was really, really dedicated. We would spend uh, 30 minutes doing silent sitting. Then we would do some breathing exercises to work with pain. And then um, we would talk about death and dying and a lot about John Cage. He was also a musician and... uh, we shared a love for John Cage. Um, and it's sad. It's sad to... Even though you, you know someone and you know they're dying in the way you meet them because they're dying, when it actually happens, it's always a bit... And, and it happened on Thursday. I was uh, sick, so I wasn't participating in the retreat last week, and as soon as I realized I was going to still have a fever, I went up to my friend's farm... And, and they've been together 17 years, and they're planning a wedding. And they just built a far- this farmhouse. And so there's a sense of, like, this new garden going in. And, 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 and just to have this kind of juxtaposition of, like, this couple so excited about this next phase of their life. And Jerry's passing was really... It made me think about this koan. And so that's why I thought we could, we could look at it. Because uh, I know I can count six of you just looking around who've had people really close to them die this year. And um, uh, it's there every day, isn't it? I don't think it goes away, and I don't think it needs to go away. And uh, I think it reminds us of what it is we're doing and why we're doing it and the importance of um, uh, making art and being engaged in life so that what we're doing is meaningful, especially in a time when uh, so many people's jobs have no meaning. And uh, I think so many people suffer from this meaningless work they do. Laurie. This is a koan from the 12th century, and you'll have to excuse my my academic side. Um, But I actually, I think before we get into the koan, I want to just give you a little background about the koan, because there are some stories that happen before the koan that are really interesting. Um, This is from 12th century China, and it's case number 62 from the uh, Book of Serenity, For those of you who are going to follow this up, you can look at Thomas Cleary's translation of the Book of Serenity. And there's always an introduction to the koan, then the koan, and then a poem. And usually the commentator, whoever's commenting on the poem, um, or on the koan, writes a poem afterwards in response to the poem, uh, the koan. Some of you might know that in the tradition that I like to to, um, uh, draw these teachings from, 
most of the people who have awakening experiences, however that's defined, um, then uh, respond by making art. And um, not necessarily by joining the professional ranks of um, religious institutions. So, um, maybe I'll start with the koan, actually. I'm not sure what to start with, really. I'll start with the koan. Here's the introduction to the koan. Bodhidharma's highest truth, Emperor Wu's confusion, Vimalakirti's teaching on non-duality, Manjushri's verbal excess. Is there anyone able to enter actively? Is there anyone able to enter actively? Some of you might know the references. I hinted at one of them last week. Bodhidharma's question and response with Emperor Wu. Bodhidharma's highest truth, Emperor Wu's confusion. Is there anyone who can enter? It's not, so some of you know the con, you like the con, how do you enter? But how do you enter actively? Here is the case. Mihu had a monk ask Yanshan, do people these days really need enlightenment or not? Does anybody relate to this yet? <laughs> Do people these days really need enlightenment or not? Yanshan said, It's not that there is no enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? The monk went back to Mihu and told him about it, and Mihu deeply agreed. This is one of those difficult cons where there's a question and the response is a question. So listen again. Do people these days really need enlightenment or not? Have you ever asked this question? We were talking for the past month about how in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali gets rid of the word enlightenment and replaces it with this word vidya to, to see things as they are or as they happen and to just uh, abolish or exit this horizon that splits, on the one hand, a me here doing my daily life and this enlightenment that I supposedly can attain or will attain. This question is really honest. Do people these days really need enlightenment or not? It's not that there's no enlightenment but what can be done about falling into the secondary? Now, I just want to back up here and, and, and tell you the preceding story about these characters. Uh, Mihu is asked by a monk, so this predates this story, do the sages since antiquity arrive at the real truth? That's a good question, isn't it? Uh, do sages now and in this lineage really arrive at the truth? Yes, said Mihu, yes, they do. The monk sensibly then said, well, but if it's the real truth, how could they arrive at it?
and Mihu responds, when another monk sold a phony silver city and gave his receipt to the chief of a foreign tribe, whose doing was this? That's a hard one. <laughs> a, a phony city. What he means here is that a city is phony. A city is not real in the way you think it's real. And that a city is a good way to understand how something cannot be real, but can function. Right? The self is like that. The self is this ongoing constructing, construction, constructing, it's a becoming that's occurring moment to moment, and it has no real solidity in the way we think it's solid, even though we keep trying to build it. And so because it has no basis, it's not real in the way you think it's real. And yet, to say that it doesn't exist makes no sense either. So if something cannot be real, and it can function, like this city. Does this make sense? Yeah. And the beauty of something that's not real is that you can sell it for really good money. And you can bribe people with it. Um, and people believe that it's real. And self is like that also, I think. So Mihu sends a monk to Yanshan to ask this question about people of today. Do people of today really need enlightenment or not? And what I hear are these simple questions. What is enlightenment? What good is it? Is it any good? Is it, is enlightenment a term that is useful? Does believing in enlightenment, like believing in God, um, shut down more than it opens up? Um, is it real or is it fake? How come some traditions can have an idea of enlightenment and some don't? Does it come and go? Does somebody get enlightened? Is Eckhart Tolle enlightened? And if he's enlightened, is he enlightened about everything? It's kind of like when they have celebrities on the news talking about, you know, Palestine or whatever. Even though they're, or like when they elect actors as presidents, right? But if you're enlightened, does it mean you're enlightened about everything? Yeah. What does it mean? If you're enlightened in a small town in northern India, and then you come to Toronto where women might be treated differently, are you still enlightened about that? Or does your enlightenment, uh, can, it, can the enlightenment receive? new cultural conditions? Is enlightenment culturally dependent? Do people of today need it or not? Is enlightenment something decisive or is it a peak experience? Do you have a moment of enlightenment that changes everything? Or is it an experience that one has that then needs to be worked with gradually for a number of years? These are some of the questions we might ask. 
Does anybody have anything they want to add before we keep going with this koan? The one I would add is what is real. What is real? Yeah. Yeah. What is real? Because it's all perception. It's all perception. Yeah. I think most of us in this room have gotten over this idea of enlightenment as being this thing we reach and the reason for our practice. I think really most of us here are practicing because we have trouble. And we have trouble, most of us, in our relationships. Because when our relationships uh, are, are seen as a kind of mirror for ourselves, we see that most of what's unconscious in our life um, shows up in relationships. Other people point out what we can't see. Uh, a favorite quote that may, many of you have heard me say over and over from Carl Jung is when something's unconscious, it's unconscious. Some people say, oh, that's that thing I do that's unconscious. That's not unconscious. <laughs> when something's unconscious, it's, you don't see it. And then, because you don't see it, you repress it. And in the repression, it then turns around and shows up again as projection. So we project onto others exactly what we repress. Um, so Mihu had these questions, and he wanted to know what Yanshan thought about this. And that's why he sends the monk off to go find out from this master, uh, is enlightenment something we need or not? Um, for those of you who studied uh, Buddhist philosophy, you also know that usually in these kind of questions, you get these cagey answers, like enlightenment is and isn't, and isn't not is, and not isn't what you think it is. <laughs> or some kind of like cagey response. But that's not how this teacher responds. He says, what should we do about falling into the secondary? As soon as you have this idea of enlightenment, then you have, you're in the secondary. As, as soon as you're, you're uh, looking at your life from outside of it, you're not one with it. You're outside of it. So if enlightenment is primary, it's actually dependent on the secondary. And vice versa. The, the, the teaching here is that you look at the secondary because of the primary. Psychologically, what that means is we, we don't meditate to wake up. We're already awake. And so our meditation is an expression of that awakening. Or said another way, in a more maybe pop psychology way, um, our lives are dominated by reactivity. We're just reacting, 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 reacting. And we think that that's creative. A lot of artists get scared when they start meditating because they think their mind will go blank and they'll never make anything again. They'll never have an idea. And it actually takes a lot of practice before you realize that most of your ideas are actually borrowed 
And not only are they borrowed, but they're repetitive. You know? And actually, to, to really open up to silence and to start to see our experience from a place that is not reactive allows um, a more creative approach to what's showing up. And in addition, it also allows things to show up that are a surprise, that are unexpected. So when you hear enlightenment, you might assume, one, that there is this thing called enlightenment that is fundamental, primary, and absolute, and two, that there's everything else, which I think really supports in us a split, especially at a time where people are so self-judgmental that they actually can, can take this term enlightenment and use it just to see how they lack something. Right? This was very clever, this first comment that's made before the koan, which I, 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 I mentioned, because this idea, if someone arrives at real truth, how do they arrive at it? Right? If you've arrived at it, it's already in the secondary. The way I like to think of this is how do we keep our practice fresh? From moment to moment, how to experience our lives fresh. So I would translate the secondary as the messy. Everything in our lives that's messy that we think is not enlightening or not spiritual or something. Hopefully, if you've been coming here for a while, you've gotten rid of that word also. So as soon as you know something, as soon as you experience something, it's already in the secondary. So as soon as you say enlightenment, it's already in the secondary. Is right. that like saying when you concretize it, you create separation, which creates a duality. So instead of having the experience of what it is, you have one, a subject and object, which means primary and secondary. Yeah, but what happens if we don't even use the word dualistic and non-dualistic? Both those words are the secondary. Because as soon as we name it, we've, we've set it up. Yeah. Uh-huh. I wasn't here for any of that one, so I might... I was barely here last time. <laughs> um, what about consciousness? Mm -hmm. Like, so you have unconsciousness, where you're not even aware of perhaps something that you might all of a sudden see. Uh-huh. So, is that, once you see it, does that equal the secondary? But you're in it. Yeah. One, once you see it and you, you experience it, then it's over. But that's not what we do. We say, oh, I've seen it, I've experienced it. That makes sense of that. And then we contrast things. 
And then in doing so, the whole thing is secondary. We're back in the same problem again. Yeah. So how do you share? Or how... If you can only be active in it, uh-huh. where does that leave the other? And how do you share? Uh-huh. What is it that you share? Uh-huh. This is the con. The con is, what do you do about the secondary? Which is very similar to the koan last week. Do you remember the koan last week? What do you do about the world? And the response is, what do you call the world? It's trying to, trying to show you that your desire to attain something is actually obscuring the whole path. That the whole path is just, it's stopping. And that in that stopping, there's an active engagement with what's really going on. It's not the head-first move forward. But desire is not bad. Desire does propel you forward in good ways, too. Uh Stephen Batchelor teaches it in a really nice way where he says, this is desire and this is attachment. There's nothing wrong with desire. Desire is who we are. It's what we do. But where we cling, this is the problematic thing. So we can have desire for becoming more and more awake. But all of our ideas about what that looks like take us out of ourselves now and here. Take us out of the messy don't allow us to see that the parts of our lives that are messy and, and that don't smell right and that don't feel right all the time, they're the part of our lives that need to be integrated. Otherwise, we keep thinking of this practice as leading towards a peak experience. And that's what's so interesting about meditation retreats, is that people who come on meditation retreats who think that they're going to realize something are the people who struggle the most. They're the people who struggle the most because they come on retreat like waiting for the acid trip. (laughs) And usually the trip is really bad. (laughs) And the reason why it's bad is because it's your trip. It's not actually what's going on on the retreat. The the, the two most famous examples of this are called the Vipassana lover and the Vipassana enemy. The Vipassana lover is you go on retreat, it's silent, and you fall in love with someone seven rows in front of you (laughs) who you've never talked to, and you just become completely obsessed. You can spend days and days and days. And then on the last day they talk, and you're like, whoa, what was I doing for ten days? Or the Vipassana enemy, which you can fill in the blanks. Donald Winnicott, uh, the child psychologist, has this um, phrase that he uses a lot called the transitional object. Have some of you heard about this before? Uh, What he means by the transitional object is when there's a, a, a baby in a crib, for example, and... The, the, the baby cries and the breast comes, 
the baby doesn't experience the breast necessarily as something other than itself. It's just there's crying, you know. Um, but then what happens when the baby starts crying and, and the, the, the mother or the caregiver, and the breast is a metaphor, um, is not there right away? How, how does he or she um, experience the beginning of being alone? He calls this go, to go on being, the, the capacity, which he says is the prerequisite for play. And he says the, the baby needs a transitional object, which is usually the corner of a blanket, mm-hmm. where the baby takes the corner of the blanket mm-hmm. and uh, sucks on it or has a, has a smell or something, and it soothes the baby. And Donald Wincott felt that this actually set up some of the deepest structures in adult psyches because it it, it lays down the foundation for our capacity to be alone. And several years ago, I was on a meditation retreat. And um, during the retreat, some of you have heard the story, but during the retreat, there was a pattern in the floor in front of me And just the way the pattern worked, uh, I started to realize it was Bob Dylan, like 1965. And it was amazing how this pattern, I can't remember right now if it was a carpet or if it was wood. The green was, and it was me and Dylan. And so for days, I would just sit and stare at him. And then after about four days, they cleaned the room and my cushion got moved over one foot so I had to sit and meditate like this but I couldn't because it wasn't it was hurting my back so I had to look forward and and Dylan was gone and I was I was tortured I, I couldn't sit without him and then I remembered this idea of the transitional object And I had this experience where I realized that everything that my mind was doing was trying to find some kind of name or form to hold on to so that I didn't have to open to something else. It was like seeing that the basis of mind is a kind of addiction to not, we always say stories, but it can be any kind of form. Richard Freeman used to always joke and say, you know, meditate on the unmanifest. And like, what do you do? You you, you can't, you can't. And you also can't live in a state of oneness all the time. The, The messiness is oneness. So these ideas of duality, non-duality, just to get rid of it and to really look at what's here. To really look at what's here. What do you do about the secondary? Is the same as saying, um, what do you call the world? What do you call yourself? Who do you think you are? Did you grieve Dylan? What's that? Did you grieve? I was a mess. <laughs> I was a mess. I, I, I couldn't believe that I, I couldn't, 
that the only thing that was preventing just resting in my whole life was this ridiculous pattern of Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. So Bob Dylan was your acid trip. It was a bad trip. <laughs> yeah. Allen Ginsberg says that Bob Dylan wrote one song about Buddhism, which is called Visions of Joanna. Does anybody know that song? Go home and listen to that song. It's, 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 it's a song about meditation practice. Uh, I wish I could recite it. But it's, about, it's actually about this topic in a certain way. But I don't want to get off topic. Um, I think what it's showing us is that when emotions show up and when strong feelings show up or something unresolved, that the emphasis of the meditation practice is not to fix it or to correct it. That I think most of us, when stuff is going on in our life, we analyze it, we talk about it, we theorize about it. In some way, the Coleman here and Patanjali's teaching is pointing out that that's not the only way to work with our experience. That, that actually underneath that, it's possible to just presence something without fixing it. I think maybe this is so hard to do in relationships, right? To actually really accept someone is way more difficult than trying to understand them. And maybe sometimes so much understanding actually strangles relationships because you can understand something and really not accept it. And I don't mean accepting like resign, you're resigned to it or something. Um, but, but to really presence something and, and allow it to be there in your life. So that's uh, yeah. the elements of compassion and equanimity. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you meet something with equanimity? This is a skill, and this is what we're doing in the yoga postures, in the sitting, is learning how to watch something and feel something without fixing it, without correcting it. And maybe what enlightenment is doing is creating just another way of trying to fix ourselves so that we're more enlightened. <coughs> that, that's not answered. It's just posing a question. And, it, and the question is supposed to give you indigestion. <laughs> Make you go, well, what, what do I believe here? What, what's my motivation for doing this practice? Or what am I leaving out? Are we willing to really be with our life and to investigate? So not just like to, to be with how things are, but to really investigate what it is. Yeah. So our presence and acceptance, the, the true depth of the practice, is that, that, is that if you're going to be striving or attaining, is that what it is? is it Say presence? a little more. Is it just presence? And acceptance are those the, the depths because otherwise it feels like the language are all you know, catching and pulling away. So yeah. I'm just trying to understand if there's a deepening of your practice. Yeah. Is it really just presence? 
staying with the messiness. that usually what we think of as, as trying to change or respond to something is often reactivity, right? So to just stop and say this whole practice is about bearing witness is not really true. This practice is about bearing witness to the point that some new response arises. Some new creative response arises. Um, so that we can take a more loving action, which is what you, you called compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this word compassion is interesting. It, it comes from the word calm, which is where we get the word community or, or to, to be with. Uh, pathos, suffering. To, to really be with suffering. To open up to suffering. Or as the Buddha says in the First Noble Truth, to fully know suffering. Fully no suffering. Most people hear that and think that is the most pessimistic philosophy mm-hmm. I've ever heard. But how powerful is that? That the first teaching of the Buddha is to fully know suffering. To fully know your suffering. And the suffering of others. And if we're connected and someone else's suffering, you're suffering too. How can you get enlightened if another sentient being is suffering. If we're all connected and you and, 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 and one other person is suffering, aren't you suffering? Mm-hmm. That's the bodhisattva vow, isn't it? Yeah, so how do you live that? What do you do about the secondary? I, I had this experience this week. Um, I, ha- I, ha- I have a friend who, when I talk to her, there's a certain way that she says something that makes me so angry. <laughs> and I got so angry. And then after I got angry, I felt so good <laughs> for being so angry. And then I realized about an hour later when I was telling another friend about it um, that I didn't feel badly for being angry. It was like this huge weight lifted. I could investigate how I was anger, how I was angry, but I didn't feel bad about it. Do you know what I mean by this? How sometimes we have like shame about strong feelings that have a, have a real purpose. So how do you investigate that and not do this double check on yourself? Oh, am I good? Am I bad? It's the same thing as being, I'm happy, I'm sad, I feel good today, I don't feel good today. How do you feel today? I feel pretty good today. Oh, do you? Oh, I feel good too. Or like codependent relationships, how are you feeling? Not so good. Yeah, I'm not feeling good either. I feel distant from you.
Um, Wan Song, who is the commentator uh, on this passage, here's what he says about it. Only when you agree on your own will it be near. What does that mean? Only when you agree on your own will it be near. The first time I heard that, I thought, maybe you don't need to get enlightened. Maybe you just need to be near it. I don't think that's what it means, but maybe. Um, When you agree with what's actually going on, you become one with it. And this is it. And you complete yourself. Sometimes I think this whole practice can be boiled down to just being able to be in proximity to what we're experiencing without identifying with it. To just be near it all the time to be near what's actually going on. Yes? Uh, Doesn't that increase suffering as well? Being near what's going on, uh, being enlightened. What if it does? Seeing. What if it does? I don't know if it, it, it increases suffering necessarily, but I think it, it can increase pain. Mm-hmm. But I think to, to open to the pain is to decrease discontent. Right? Because the discontent is the not wanting the pain to be there wanting something else to be there. It's not being near. And what I like about this term near is it's not being swallowed up either. It's not saying being swallowed up. Just to be near, to be in proximity with. You know, before the street retreat last week, I had so many calls from people kind of getting freaked out. People finally being like, whoa, like I don't know if I can sleep outside. I don't know if I can be outside for three days on the street. (coughs) And I'd say, well, we'll just slow down. What do you actually feel right now? Well, I feel fear. Well, we're not on the street. We're right here. So you feel fear. And, and then to, to really like come down again to this moment, what's going on? Because that is the skill and the only skill you can use when the fear then comes up, if it does, in three days. Somebody else was saying, you know, my greatest worry about the retreat is how it's going to be for everyone else. <laughs> so, so we notice that, and then by being in proximity to it, we don't identify with it. It's not the only way it has to be. Rami. If there's if there's suffering going on, it really does require action and um, uh, uh, 
thoughtful response, you, you need to be close enough and it clued in enough to know what those solutions or changes are. If you're avoiding, then you can't make the right choice. You can't make good choices. Yeah. Anybody else hasn't talked yet, maybe? Sarah? Um, I'm just thinking about how when you become more present and more aware, there's this moment where you kind of get the suffering button pushed, and you can react, and you can throw up your defenses, whatever that looks like, and turn away. But if you're, I think we're also aware of the choice, and if you actually turn into that suffering, then it gives you that mirror that you were talking about, and so much more awareness and knowledge of our own self, and then yeah. that is also being near, near that suffering to yeah. understand. Anybody else? It feels like kind of relief to know that so much of the work seems to be just in showing up. <laughs> just sitting with it at times, it just feels um, it can be destructive. I mean, yeah, because I have had that experience over the weekend, and sitting with it, it was at times very unbearable. That you want, to, I was like, okay, I've got to do something mm -hmm. else, and then you realize, okay, what am I doing here? So yeah. you kind of like sit back and sit with it. And it's, yeah. it's well, that's this question: Is there anybody who can enter actively? Mm. Can you enter right now? Have you noticed how much the lights changed? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something you're feeling in your. Is anyone hungry? Yes. Is anybody hot? <laughs> Menopause? <laughs> um, and when you experience those things, do you immediately go to what I could do to change? I react how I could change. And so often we know that our reactivity is it's just momentum. We don't even really think about it. And what happens when we do start to slow down and notice the way the light has changed? And instead of that automatically being, it's late, I'm hungry, I need to eat, where am I going to go? Uh, I need to eat really fast. Uh, the black hoof is down. Oh, I can't eat there. And this whole, this whole thing starts as opposed to um, notice the way the light has changed. Noticing the people in the room, the feel of this room. When you come in and you meditate... You don't go inside yourself and close yourself off and get into some deep state of samadhi. You sit and you're aware of this room and the people here. And our practice is to be aware of this. It's not to get something. And this has to be beaten over our heads with these ridiculous stories <laughs> over and over again. 
And if you don't get it through the story, your spouse will do it to you, and your kid will do it to you, and all the people who are not spiritual will do it to you until you get reduced to someone who is ordinary. And then you can become so ordinary that you then identify, I'm just ordinary. <laughs> so, so no matter how you define yourself, you're trapped. You're totally trapped. And that part of ourself that likes to feel secure likes to trap ourselves. But in the trapping, the security you get actually creates more anxiety because you can't be grounded that way. Repeat that again. <laughs> you can listen to the audio. <laughs> you can't get enlightened. You don't get enlightened. I always like to imagine that I did. Like you go to the pearly gates or something, you get enlightened, and then you go, ah, oh, just like I thought it would be. <laughs> but really? The, the saying that's usually in Indian philosophy is usually a knife cannot cut itself, or a finger cannot touch itself, or the eye cannot see itself. I like that one because it has that double meaning. The eye can't ever see itself. And in the seeing of itself, it's just a solipsistic creation of its own self again. Yeah. Can anyone actively enter? It's kind of like your question is, you know, it's not just about bearing witness. It's about bearing witness for long enough in a sustained way over time that some new possibility can arise. There's a new way of experience the, in the change of light in this room. And, and maybe some of you, your whole work, Sarah, Mike, your work is about Andrea no, noticing light, how it changes. This is what we do. Kyo, Aaron, this is our, our work, to, to notice things in this way, to make a study of something all the time. Sarah Selecki always says, look at something as if you're going to write about it in three years. When we were on retreat, I said, how's your meditation practices going? I'm looking at everything like I'm going to write about it in three years. Can you do that right now? And in entering your life in that way, nothing's secondary. Because nothing's primary. It's just this. When we meditate, we sit down because it returns us to what's primary. Don't you feel that way when you sit? You sit down, it's like, whoa, this is what's important.
And so, so to sum up, you know, wisdom, that, that, that creative wisdom that we have, is not, it's not something you have, it's not separate from you. Wisdom can only know emptiness. And emptiness is nothing. So wisdom is not knowing. It's, it's not knowing how things are. It's not really knowing what you are. And what we're doing when we're meditating is we're, we're learning how to unknow. I, I heard a song the other day, and there was a line in the song that said, Undiscover yourself. I kept hearing that. Forgot who it is. Someone in Montreal gave it to me. Undiscover yourself. So undiscover yourself. To, to unknow. So, so, the, so not knowing is the heart of what it is that we're doing. And then out of that comes creativity. When I sit down to write, and, and I know what I'm going to write, it sucks. <laughs> how on earth do you sit down at a blank page knowing how many people have written words in English? And you're going to write something? <laughs> How does somebody nowadays paint a painting? Is that mind-boggling? So if you approach it in that kind of band of consciousness, you can't do it. And anything you will do will just be repetitive. Schlock. But to actually approach the canvas as a canvas. To approach film as the film to approach your life as, as life. So there's nothing secondary, and there's also nothing primary. Good luck. <laughs> Let's finish chanting. <laughs>